Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Judy Greer is an actress, and she gets stopped on the street a lot. The people who stop her always ask her the exact same question. Hey, uh, you look familiar. What do I know you from? So she's been in like a million different things. Could be Arrested Development, could be It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, could be any one of a whole pile of different movies. And here she is, stuck. People won't let you go. They really won't. They won't let you off the hook. So she has a strategy. She calls it fan profiling. She'll explain. It's bullseye. Coming up, my conversation with Judy Greer. If you can't quite place her, it's probably because she basically never plays the lead. It's kind of like natural selection. You know, I started getting these certain roles as like the sister, the sidekick, the best friend, the assistant. And then those are the roles that you start getting called in for. And... So it kind of just happened to me. And she's come to terms with that. The lead girl in the movie is never really that funny. I mean, she doesn't get all the funny jokes and she doesn't get to be weird and wacky because she has to be pretty. And when you're the best friend, you know, you can, if I gain 10 pounds, like whatever, man. Then Ice-T. I talked with him in 2012. He just released a documentary called Something from Nothing, The Art of Rap. It's really great. He interviews a bunch of brilliant MCs about how and why they do what they do. You know, every rapper walks into a, a show and says, I'm not rapping tonight. I'm a chill. But it's biting me, biting me, enticing me to rhyme. I can't hold it back. I'm looking for the line, taking off my coat, clearing my throat. This rhyme will be kicking in until I hit my last note. It's like crazy. It's like it's art. I mean, we take a lot of time with these rhymes. I want you to hear every word. And the great MCs understand that's important. Finally, I've got a really, really solid Bill Murray recommendation for you. Not an old SNL bit or some viral thing you did for Funny or Die or whatever. This is over 25 years old. It's the only movie he's ever directed. Oh, it is so good. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest this week, Judy Greer. She and I talked in 2014. When she first got out of school, Judy was auditioning for lead parts and not getting them. So she shifted gears. She became a co-star. Turned out she became one of the most successful co-stars in Hollywood. And it makes sense. I mean, she is a gifted actress. She's funny. She's beautiful. But she also still... It kind of has that quality of looking like a real human being you might know in real life. She's been a best friend in a million romantic comedies, 27 Dresses, 13 Going on 30. She's been in dramatic movies like The Descendants and Jurassic World. She's been on every kind of TV show, from Two and a Half Men to ER to Arrested Development. On Arrested, she played the very memorable role of Kitty Sanchez, an insane administrative assistant bent on driving home any point she makes by showing her boobs. When Judy and I talked, it was right after the release of her memoir, I Don't Know What You Know Me From, Confessions of a Co-Star. Recently, she's appeared in the new Planet of the Apes movie in the Hulu series Casual. 
Later this month, she'll star alongside Robert Redford and Jane Fonda in Our Souls at Night on Netflix. Here she is in one of her classic supporting roles, one of her first as well, in The Wedding Planner. She plays the best friend to Jennifer Lopez's character, who's professionally successful and, here's a curveball, unlucky in love. Let me see what font would I use. You're going to be a partner! i got to get the account first. Oh, please, Mary, you're totally going to get the account. The Greenberg marriage lasted one year, two months. You win the pot again. How do you do it? I was more than four years off. I honestly love you by Olivia Newton-John was their wedding song. Puts them in the 14-month divorce ring. <laughs> Speaking of honest love, Jed was asking about you again. Uh, I don't trust a man who gets regular pedicures. Mary, you haven't been on a date in two years. Your point? My point is if you're not interested in Jed, there is a handsome Italian man waiting to marry oh you in the lobby. <laughs> Did you talk to him? Just for a few minutes. He is so adorable. He's not adorable. How can you say that? When we were kids, he followed me around for an entire summer asking me if I had a vagina. <laughs> there was a there was a comment you did a, a Reddit ask me anything the oh, other yeah. day and there was a comment that I found very charming which was uh from just some dude <laughs> and it was about it was in a thread about a bunch of uh romantic comedies uh-huh. that you had been in and he just wrote yeah I saw all of these movies my wife made me thank you for making them tolerable. <laughs> awesome there is a very specific kind of thing that you have to do when you are acting in one of these movies and you are not the lead because the best friend is the person that has to set up everything (laughs) Everything. that happens in in the entire movie so you have to both be believable and essentially narrate the film through exposition it's so true and that was a great clip because i was listening to the invert i knew what you were doing and i was like what am i getting out that she wants to be a partner that she's close that she has to nail this wedding so she can be a partner that she always wins the pool and how long the weddings last that she doesn't have a boyfriend that one guy likes like it was amazing i was like wow one scene i really like when when you started auditioning when you started auditioning in LA after acting school mm-hmm. um were you what was it like when you started walking into auditions and you weren't auditioning for a play against theater school people right you were auditioning for you know the lead role in a WB series and you were there in one of these weird rooms full of spectacularly beautiful television people. So beautiful. It was weird because um, uh, they all looked so pretty and they were so skinny and they all seemed really happy and well-adjusted and they never dropped anything and their fly (laughs) was never open and they never like thought, like I always run into an audition waiting room like I'm going to pee my pants because you're stuck in traffic for so long to get there. Like they never did that. Maybe they didn't go to the bathroom, those girls. I don't know. But it was different in in theater school. um, You know, you're taught to be anything, that actors can be anything, that you can, you know, I played like um, an eight-year-old boy with AIDS. I played a eunuch. I played like you're just told that you're an old person, you're a young person, you're a cow, like whatever. And so going into these auditions now for the first time and I'm like I don't look like these girls and we're auditioning for the same roles and I don't really understand where I fit into this. When did you make that pivot that you describe in the book between trying to be and not being especially successful at being uh, the superstar lead role and all of a sudden working pretty much right away being the co-star? Yeah I well I didn't really make that decision on my own (laughs) kind of gets made for you you know you start when I came here I just um like 
I auditioned for everything. I went in for everything that they sent me on. I would audition five times a day. I just kept auditioning. And and then it's kind of like natural selection. You know, I started getting these certain roles as like the sister, the sidekick, the best friend, the assistant. And then those are the roles that you start getting called in for. And so it kind of just happened to me. And I didn't make a decision to like stop trying to be the lead, but I but I love working and I love the roles that I get and they're crowd pleaser roles, you know, they, people like them and respond to them and it's fun to make people laugh and didn't really bother me that much. But, um, but yeah, it just kind of was like a natural, it was very organic. Did it give you a sense of what you were good at? Because one of the things that's special about the best friend role in a romantic comedy specifically is that it's one of the only roles historically in Hollywood movies where a woman gets to be funny. Yeah. I mean, thankfully it's changing, you know, with like great women comedians right now, like starring in movies and making movies and making television shows. And, um, but yeah, it was, it was kind of true. The, the lead girl in the movie is never really that funny. I mean, she doesn't get all the funny jokes and she doesn't get to be weird and wacky because she has to be pretty. And when you're the best friend, you know, you can, if I gain 10 pounds, like whatever, man, like no one tells me you look fat, you need to lose weight. I can do whatever I want with my hair. I can do whatever I want with my makeup. Usually my wardrobe is a little more interesting. It's not I, as important. You've worked really consistently through your career, which is a pretty remarkable achievement. I mean, yeah. we're looking at, at 15 years and something coming up on 100 movies <laughs> and television programs and other acting roles. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if uh, when you are relatively early in your career – um, even though you were working consistently, it was it, there was a part of you that that didn't want to turn things down. Yeah, a hundred percent, and that's definitely still the case. I like, I'm always convinced that every job I get will be my last, and and I didn't really turn anything down, and I don't actually turn a lot down. I mean, I like working. I love being on set. I love meeting new people, and I I kind of think of it as like stopping the momentum an object in motion stays in motion and I always sort of think that with my work you write a lot about in the book you're uh, growing up in the suburbs of Detroit yeah and you seem very midwestern in that you are very hesitant to give yourself credit for anything (laughs) are you are you in your is that is that a public facing issue or is that also in living inside of you um, I think it's living inside of me. I I was always, you know, you're, well, I was taught not to brag, not to boast that at any given minute it could all be taken away from me. Um, my mom, who is awesome, <laughs> she's weird sometimes, the things that she says. I remember she was at my house. This was a few years ago, and I have a cute little house, and I like it, and it's nice. And she was like, your house is so cute. And I was like, thanks, Mom. And she goes, I hope you get to keep it. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) I was like, Mom, I'm doing okay. Like, I didn't didn't get a big mansion. It's it's small. It's 1,300 square feet. Like, I'm careful about, you know, my mortgage payment is, is reasonable. Like, I'm okay. It's okay. It's funny. And then I was like, oh, that's where I get it from, like, that at any given minute it could all be taken away from me it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne i'm talking to the actor judy greer her book of essays is called i don't know what you know me from confessions of a co-star
Can you give me some idea of what it is like for you when someone comes up to you in the real world and knows you but doesn't know why? Well, it's it's not super terrible, but it is definitely time consuming. <laughs> and that's my only real irritation comes from the time consuming aspect of it, at least lately. Because people won't let you go. They really won't. They won't let you off the hook. They need to satisfy. They need to scratch the itch they of do. who is this person I mean, that I recognize. so badly. Like, it's pretty intense sometimes. I was just in Toronto and New York doing stuff for my book. And I and I was, like, going through customs. I, my flight got in from Toronto into Newark at, like, 10, 9 or 10 p.m. And I'm so tired. And I've been doing press all day and was wearing very uncomfortable shoes. And, um, and the guy, the customs agent held on to my he was super sweet his name was bill um he hung on to my passport and my ticket my little like customs thing until i told him stuff that i was in and i don't really think he he wasn't like holding it hostage he just happened to have it in his hands when he was like well what are you in why do i know you why do i know you what are you in and i just wanted to be like oh please bill please can i can I please just – and he asked for my autograph at the end of it all. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> you've done such a variety of projects. I mean, the people who watch Two and a Half Men are, I'm sure, very different from the people who watch The Descendants or It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia yes. or whatever, and so or Marmaduke. <laughs> but I wonder if you could just – as an example, if you could give me – like if I came up to you, which I might – <laughs> I would have a hard time not doing it because I'm a fan of yours. Thank you. Uh, but if I couldn't place exactly why I was a fan of yours, <laughs> if you might try fan profiling. I mean, you, I would go Arrested Development because I, I just feel like you're, like, very hip and cool looking. And that would be – I would say you were an original Arrested Development fan. Well, I stole the pilot screener from the commercial radio station I was interning for. Yes. So I was so excited that there was a new show with David Cross yeah. and Jeffrey Tambor. Let's take a listen to a clip from Arrested Development. So your character, <laughs> you have a, you had a recurring character, a, new, a frequently recurring character on Arrested Development named Kitty Sanchez. Mm -hmm. And she was the assistant and sometime love interest. <laughs> of all of, of them. Of, yes. <laughs> especially of George, George Sr., who yes. owned the company that was the sort of central uh, MacGuffin in the program. <laughs> And his son, Michael, had a lot of trouble with Kitty uh, because once he, Michael, became head of the company, he discovered that Kitty had a lot of valuable and dangerous information. <laughs> so he, she has to be, you know, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. And so he fired her mm -hmm. um, when she went on spring break to a place called Senior Tadpoles. Sure. And now he is trying, in this scene, he is trying to unfire her. <laughs> because he's realized that he's made a terrible mistake. <laughs> I just make believe that none of this ever happened and just start fresh. Michael, of course I'll come back. Because I never really left because we both know that you can't fire people. Well, I did fire you and now I'm hiring you back. You don't have authority over me. They don't have nachos here. You know what, Kitty? Why don't we forget it? Because I've been trying to be very, very generous to you and you don't respect me. So I'm firing you, okay? You are fired. All right, Mike. But I know where things are, and you don't, and you are asking for a whole world of trouble. If you're threatening me, you're going to be very sorry. Are you threatening me? Yeah, that's a threat. I'm threatening you. Did you hear that, everyone? Michael Bluth is threatening me! i got to get out of here. Part of the story. Can't be a part of the story. Can't be a part of the story. Say goodbye to your company, Michael. 
and say no, goodbye no, 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 no. to these. Because it's the last time. That's it. Oh my god, she's such a freak. I love it. <laughs> At the end, she lifts her shirt. Which Michael's not, I mean, is, he's trying to avoid that. Yeah. I actually have some bad news for you. Oh. Which is this. I, I'm, you very nearly got it right when you fan profiled me. However. Um, Do the, you go Archer? I'm an Archer man. All right. Archer is what I recognize you from, despite the fact that your face does not appear on screen <laughs> because it's an animated show. Um, Archer's my my favorite show on television, and you play this character character named uh, Cheryl Tunt. Yes. <laughs> uh, now known by another name, Charlene. Charlene. Um, and she is a billionaire secretary, mm-hmm. um, now country superstar. Mm-hmm. Um, but a, who is really into rough sex? Yeah, uh, she's just a real. She's a real situation. She's a hot mess. That one. She is. <laughs> I I believe that my role was not supposed to be on the show. I think it was supposed to be sort of like a one time thing. And Adam Reed, who is a genius and writes everything and does everything, he said that once we cast you, we wanted to make it more um, like a beef up the role a little bit more, which is hugely flattering coming from him. And another thing that was different about the pilot is I was always meant to be this like weepy secretary who was always pining for Archer. And so it was really cool to see the shift in my character when they kind of decided to like use me for my strengths, which, which, <laughs> Wait, how, how would you care? Would you say that your that your strengths as an actress involve? I think that they were also fans of Arrested Development, and I think that they wanted to um, use those strengths of mine, my crazy, my penchant for being like a crazy girl. After a break, I'll finish my conversation with Judy Greer. Don't go anywhere. Plus, later on, iced tea. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. More than 40 million Americans speak Spanish and millions more are learning. For all of you, I'd like to recommend NPR's Radio Ambulante. It's the podcast to hear incredible stories from all over Latin America and across the U.S. Hosted by novelist Daniel Alarcón, Radio Ambulante covers the region like nobody else. Reporting and storytelling in Español. Radio Ambulante is on NPR One or wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from ZipRecruiter. If you're looking for top talent with ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Their powerful technology matches your job to the right candidates, and then their easy-to-use dashboard helps you find the right hire. That's why 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within one day. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com first. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actress Judy Greer. We talked in 2014. Let's take a listen to a scene from Archer. So uh, Cheryl, as we mentioned, is a secretary at uh, and she is the secretary for Mallory Archer, who is the boss of ISIS, Mm -hmm. which is the spy agency that is at the heart of Archer. 
And in this scene, she just suggested a code name for a new operation. The code name she suggested is Dick Sledge. <laughs> um, and needless to say, her coworkers then ask her why, why in the name of all things holy, she would suggest that name as the code name for a spy operation. So then it's settled. We're a go on Operation... Ooh, what should we call it? Dick Sledge. You wanna... No, but it's like sour milk. You just gotta take a whiff. What's the story, neckbones? Sophomore year at my stupid college, I had a huge crush on the quarterback, this super hot guy named Dick Sledge. Sploosh. Jinx. It was like I was invisible. He wouldn't even sign my cast when I broke my own arm. But I thought, if I knew what he liked, then I'd have an end. So one Saturday when he had a game, I broke into his dorm room to see what kind of music he was into, or turtles, or roll around in his clothes, or whatever. But <laughs> you were so busy sniffing his jock, you didn't hear him come in? Because he totally snuck up on me. Then I guess I blacked out because I don't remember stabbing him at all. Why'd you have a knife? I didn't. It was a stupid pair of scissors. And it was his fault for grabbing me with his throwing hand. That's how his tendon got severed. They said he could have gone pro. So, glossing over why you broke your own arm. So he'd sign my cast. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I forgot about that. Um, I had to, and it's great. <laughs> Um, do you ever get a script for this television program and think uh, that may be too much? No. No, I don't. You I... have a best friend who eats cocaine, by the way, on the yes. show. Yeah, in all forms. My favorite is yogurt. I love that they make <laughs> cocaine yogurt. I love my relationship with Pam because we are we're a wreck together. Like I, am ne I mean, we clearly are best friends, but like we can't stand each other also i think i i don't know i don't think we could function without each other um but uh yeah i'd never think it's too much oh man i guess i guess i could i could do an hour <laughs> just about I, I could do an hour just about her new role as a country music superstar i know it's great she's amazing and that that's like this weird you know, she now has this like weird trait, this quality that no one knew about her, and that's how they're gonna make money. And oh, it's so funny. All of them living in her mansion. So good. Where does he think of these things? Can we say her new catchphrase together? Uh, yeah. You want? Should I scream it? Yeah, we should from... scream it. We'll scream it. We'll just. I'm not moving my microphone because okay. I'll never get it back. Ready? Outlaw country. Woo! Judy, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me on Bullseye. So fun. Say goodbye to these. <laughs> Judy Greer's new book is called <laughs> I Don't Know What You Know Me From, Confessions of a Co-Star. <laughs> Judy Greer from a few years ago. Her memoir is called I Don't Know What You Know Me From, Confessions of a Co-Star. Get it? If you haven't read it, see her in that new Planet of the Apes movie. See her in Casual on Hulu, Arrested Development. I think if you ever heard this show before, you know how much I love Archer. She's great on Archer. Basically, anything she's in, she's great in it. And hey, speaking of how Judy never gets to star in anything, she's going to be starring alongside Jason Sudeikis in the new movie Driven. That's going to hit theaters next year. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's a few of our favorite interviews from Bullseye this week. Up next, Ice-T. Ice-T is, of course, an entertainment business 
veteran. He's been acting for over 25 years. He was a pioneer of West Coast hip-hop in the early 1980s. His roots are so deep that his first screen credit, which was in 1984's Breakin', was as, and I swear to God, this is the credit, Rap Talker. His breakthrough on screen was in New Jack City in 1991. He spent the last dozen or so years solving crimes on Law & Order SVU. He's an MC, and as the frontman of the metal band Body Count, he's released more than a dozen albums in his 30-year music career. When I talked with him in 2012, he just directed his first ever movie. It was a documentary called Something From Nothing, The Art of Rap. In it, he travels from coast to coast, talking to rappers from Grandmaster Kaz to Kanye West about the work of the MC. Let's take a listen to a bit of Ice-T's 1987 hit, Six in the Morning, which helped define gangster rap and a generation of West Coast MCs. Six in the morning, police at my door. Fresh Shadita squeak across the bathroom floor. Out my back window, I take my escape. Didn't even get a chance to grab my old school tape. Mad with no music, and the streets to a player is the place to be. Got a knot in my pocket, weighing at least a grand. Gold on my neck, my pistol's close in hand. I'm a self-made monster of the city streets. Remotely controlled by hard hip-hop beats. But just living in the city is a serious task. Didn't know what the cops wanted, didn't have time to ask. Ice, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Oh man, thanks for the support. Thanks for having me, man. I I think it's I think it's really interesting. You know, you you were cutting you were cutting hip hop records on the West Coast at the very dawn of people cutting hip hop records on the West Coast. Yes, sir. Um, and it's interesting to me that a lot of those early West Coast hip hop pioneers um, are folks who came from came had new york roots and were physically transplanted i mean Mm -hmm. sort in the bay area you have davy d i'm from is originally from new york came to the bay area in the early 80s um and and you came to la as a as a young teenager yeah well i I mean i don't know how much that had to do with the the art form i think it's just that when you heard hip-hop no matter where you were it was the kind of a culture that made you want to try to be part of it. Whether you thought you were an artist, whether you thought you could be a DJ, whether you thought you could break dance, or whether you thought you could rap. It was the kind of culture that had a lot of open doors, and everybody tried their luck at it. Um, I started rapping before anybody had ever bought a car from it. I want to play a little bit of your first record. Um, this is 1983's The Coldest Rap. Let's take a listen. Y'all, 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 please, please, please check it out. Because I'm a player. I'm always clean. I rode Mercedes Benz when I was 17. From the womb to the tomb, I run my game. Because I'm cold as ice. And I show no shame. Sent close. I got more money than the U.S. Mint. I ride ragtop rolls with rocks on my hand. Monster bodies and Mercedes. I have an ocean line, private jet. Bel Air boogies place my bets. I own islands off the coast of France. And I wear designer shirts and pants. When I was brought into this world, my mama never asked. I was a boy or a girl. Plus, I rolled over to her and gave her a kiss. She said, yo, daddy don't rock me like this. When the 
doctor hit me on the behind. I broke on down with a funky rhyme. The nurses said I was awfully cute when I played at the joint. In a suit, y'all, 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 please, please, please check it out. This song, I mean, this is like, uh, this is like an electro record. It's yeah. actually Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis on the production. Yeah, what happened with that was... You know, I'm I'm at a beauty parlor. At that time, I had my hair. My hair was permed and curled, like some real pimp stuff. And uh, I used to say the rhymes to the girls, just, you know, trying to mack them down. You know, it was my, my, my way of entertaining them. And this guy said, hey, man, you want to make a record? I'm like, word? Yeah, I got a record. I got a studio. This particular guy's name was Willie Strong. And he had another guy named Cletus Anderson. And they own uh, a record store in L.A. called VIP. They owned this track with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis on it. Somebody was singing on it. And they took me in the studio. They wiped the singing track. They put me in a booth just like we're sitting in now talking. And he goes, go. You know, there's a great part in the movie uh, that you've directed, The Art of Rap, where you're talking about this kind of um, pre-hip-hop rapping and rhyming this kind of just street rap toasting you know, yeah. yeah tell me a little bit that was that where was that where you first or, or was your plan always to be you know in 1979 rapper's delight broke nationally i mean it was a huge record I had no idea it was ever going to be rap music. Just those rhymes was something that you would do on the street. There was a um, uh, album if you research it it's called The Hustlers Convention. And it was like a, you know old cats saying rhymes and you had The Last Poets, then you had Gil Scott Heron. And uh you know Iceberg Slims even did an album called Reflection where he spoke in rhyme. Speaking in rhyme has been tradition in black, you know, culture for years. Now doing it syncopated to a beat that's different that's where rap and hip-hop came so i had all these little rhymes i used to make rhymes for the gangs you know i would uh say all these different rhymes that's one of the rhymes i say early in the, a movie just to entertain my friends and um when i first heard hip-hop i'm like i could do that you know it was similar to something i'd already been doing but it took a while to learn how to get it to lock into the beat and like rakim says correct use of syllables you know you somebody could try to rhyme and you could listen to them and you can go it's just not locked in and it's like all they gotta do is drop one syllable and it'll just lock in and that's when you get into the craft we actually have a clip from the movie of rakim talking a little bit about his writing process um let's take a listen to that i try to start off with 16 dots on the paper what Start off with 16 dots on the paper. Bang, 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 bang. If it's a 16 ball rhyme, at least I know, you know, what I'm dealing with. My thing was, if four balls was this long, my thing was, I got, you know, I, I see like a graph in between them four balls. And within that, I could place so many words and so many syllables and so many words. And, and at times, you know, if the beat was perfect, I can take it to the point where there's there's no other words you can put in that four bars. There's these two revolutions going on um, shortly after your first LP came out. Um, you know, right in this time, 86, 87, 88, 89, um, one is on the West Coast you have NWA taking what you did on, on 6 in the Morning and making it into... Uh, 
phenomenon. A super movement. Yeah. The other one is this sort of aesthetic revolution, which Rakim is, I think, probably the greatest. I mean, you there are some other truly exceptional examples. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, you talked to Big Daddy Kane in the movie, um, and there were folks who were doing complex things before Rakim. But there's this aesthetic change going on at that time, which is, you know, this this complexity is entering hip hop. I call it verbal gymnastics. It's like not, let's not just rhyme simple to the four four. We're gonna intricate it. We're gonna make it in sixteens. Uh, L.A. at the, that time was trying to define themselves, and uh, we had to let the world know what we looked like. So while we were busy defining ourselves which was pretty much a gang culture. Uh, New York had taken it off into what, what in hip-hop they call skills. They're like, okay, anyone can rhyme 4-4, four, four, but do you have skills? Can you take it to the next level? So what I had to do is say, I'm not going to be able to have maybe that verbal complexity. I have to rhyme heavy. I have to make, you know, uh, like I said in a Mind Over Matter, it ain't really how much you say is what you say. I got no f- time on the mic to play. I have to take what I say and just make it heavy. So every single bar means something. And in Chuck D, I live off of his rhyme. I don't rhyme for the sake of riddling. So there's no riddles in my rhymes. Every single word means something. There's something really great that Chuck D says um, in the movie that I use, frankly, something that had never occurred to me. And Chuck D's style for those who for some reason have never heard Public Enemy, is a sort of booming and proclamatory. Yeah, yeah. It's, he has one of the most powerful Here voices. it is. You know, whoa, okay. yeah. And <laughs> Chuck talks about the fact that he developed, that he developed this style, and many of the MCs that went before him developed these sort of proclamatory, big, booming styles, essentially because they were rapping on such lousy sound systems that in order to cut through the crappy sound, you just had to boom. Like, it had to be as clear as a bell and as powerful as, a, you know, a gunshot or else it wasn't going to get heard. You don't know how many MCs I've trained to rap live. Like, I've taken people out on tour and I've like, look, I got to teach you how to rap live. The trick is, first off, you have to listen to the monitors. Secondly... You have to listen to your voice and how it's coming through that monitor and, and actually EQ your own voice to break that system. So if I got a very low voice like that and it sounds muggy, I might have to take my voice up to where it's going to cut. You know, I work with Slayer and uh, Tommy from Slayer said one time, he said, well, if I can't hear what you're saying, how can I hear what you're saying? You know, so you have to. I mean, we take a lot of time with these rhymes. I want you to hear every word. And the great MCs understand that's important. These are like, if you even look at the paper, like it's like entry, it's thousands and thousands of words. I told somebody one day, I said, you know, I take a Bruce Springsteen album. I could take all the words in that whole album. And that's one song for me. The amount of numbers of words I have to use to get one song done. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the rapper and actor Ice-T. He talks to a whole pile of hip-hop luminaries about their craft in his new movie. It's called Something from Nothing, The Art of Rap. I want to play a clip of a great freestyler who also um, has spent his career refining and refining and refining his use of language, and that's Eminem. 
Um, this is him talking to you in Detroit about his writing process. What I love about rap is that it feels like it's puzzles to me. Like words are like puzzles and trying to figure out a puzzle and trying to figure out what word can go here. Like how can I take uh, words and, and put them at the end of the sentence, but in between maybe make some words rhyme in between that, that rhyme and like sandwich them. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, so sandwich those words and try to make them, make them rhyme inside of the phrase and then come back outside and try to, you know, try to rhyme with the word that I ended on the snare. You know, like I just like, I'm just I'm kind of real into the, the technical part of, of it. That sounded complicated with what he was saying. Like a rapper can follow that. And to everybody else, that probably sound like, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it must have been it, it must have been fun to go and talk to all of these people that you've known for probably most of these people are probably personal friends and acquaintances. No, everyone was. Everyone was. The only way I could do the movie was just call my friends. I, I had no ability to call. I didn't really want to call people I didn't know because I wanted the film to feel like a conversation. So I just called all my friends about my address book. I said, look, I got an idea. I want to do a movie. I'm not going to ask you about money, cars, girls, beef, jewelry, none of that. I just want to ask you about the craft. Everybody's like, wow, nobody ever asks us those questions. So they were like, word, I just come through with the camera, get me. So now you got to hunt them down and chase them because all these guys are moving targets and stuff. So you're trying to, you know, you're trying to get Dr. Dre and he's like, show up at my crib at three. And you show and his man's like, yo, Dre had to pick his son up. He'll be back at six. You get back <laughs> at six. And then somebody's like, yo, Dre says tomorrow at nine. Is that cool, Ice? And they're like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? I got a camera crew. Somebody goes, be real's on the phone. OK, tell be real we're on our way. You know, so we just running and gunning. And there's no rehearsal or anything. No one was prepped for the questions. I was just having fun talking to my friends about something we all love. Because I imagine that when when you go and, you know, have lunch with Dub C or something like that, you guys are talking about each other's kids or you're talking about, you know. We're talking about old what times. What movie you saw, like whatever. Like yeah. Just normal people's friend stuff. Yeah, we talk about the Xbox and we talk about this, we talk about that. But mostly we reminisce. I think, you know, if you were a football player and you see some of your old teammates, you you talk about game six in the playoffs. You know, I got we, we all have so many inside stories. I remember I was with Dub C in Canada and Coolio broke into a pawn shop, you know, like, <laughs> and stole, like, a guitar or something, you know? And so I'm, like, responsible for them. They was, like, the mad circle. And I'm, like, responsible for them. And Coolio had a guitar. And I'm like, yo, where did you get that guitar? And he's like, somebody snitched and said, yo, Coolio then broke the window at the... I'm like, yo, we got a show <laughs> Tomorrow, like, you can't be robbing. They're going to, what if you get arrested tomorrow? You in Canada, dude. So there was like, there's so many of those stories. And I think one of the things about interviewing, like, I guess more classic MCs and people from, that were in my area at time when I was, you know, out there on the road, you got humility. You know, when you deal with a new MC, everything's on point. There's no mistakes. There's no problems. I can't, you know, no, we don't have no mistakes. But when you get to a, somebody like Run, he can look back and it's just funny. You know, you can, you, you, you've already succeeded in what you want to do. You can kind of laugh at your life. More with Ice-T after a quick break. Still to come. Maybe you've heard Mr. T's rap album, 1984's 
Be Somebody or Be Somebody's Fool, featuring the smash hit song Treat Your Mother Right. Well, maybe you've heard the rumors that Ice-T actually ghostwrote those verses. We'll ask him the hard-hitting questions when we come back in just a second. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from New West, featuring the Texas Gentleman. Taking cues from the Swampers, the Wrecking Crew, and the band, the Texas Gentlemen have established themselves as much more than just a studio backing band. They're a veritable tour de force of Texas rock, R&B, country, and soul. And their new album, TX Jelly, firmly plants its flag as a rich, complicated, and singularly artistic statement. Available now. Visit thetexasgentleman.com for more info. This is Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. In my new interview with Hillary Clinton, I asked for her reaction when Donald Trump said this about her showing up slightly late after a commercial break in a debate. I know where she went. It's disgusting. You can listen to Fresh Air on the NPR One app and wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get back to my conversation with Ice-T in a second. But before we do, let's check in with Pop Rocket. Pop Rocket, of course, is Bullseye's sister show, kind of a chattier, more laid-back version of Bullseye. Every week, you get a brilliant, fascinating conversation about why we love what we love in pop culture. This week, a treat for you, guest host on Pop Rocket. It's the brilliant and hilarious comedian and writer, Louis Vertel. Hey, Louis. What's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Hey, Jesse. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about fall TV. Lots of new shows, and the Emmys will hopefully boost us into a new confidence about the fall season. Actually, I'm a little bit pessimistic, but hey, we'll see. Sounds hot. Pop Rocket. Get it where you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Ice-T. He and I talked in 2012. I, I want to take a listen to uh, Dougie Fresh. Uh, talking a little bit about um, the rappers who went before him and inspired him. Can you, off the head, break out uh, one of your favorite rhymes from any rapper, from any generation, from any time that you walk with that's just stuck in your head? I mean, for me, man, the three best MCs of all time is Melly Mel, Kumo D, and Grandmaster Cat. Right. Hands down. You got any as rhymes far as off foundation. the head? Off the, the... I know all they rhymes, so don't say ask one, me that. Say one. <laughs> just say one. Say one. Kumo D said, I rhyme 100 miles an hour with lightning speed and power. Sweetest of the sweet make an MC sour. Timber as a tower because I devour any MC and I can prove it now or a little bit later. I mean, come on, I can keep going <laughs> That's this. right. But see, the funny thing is each one of their styles are very different. Like, yeah. Modi was technically extreme. I mean, like, like sharp. And then slickness and flavor was cast. Melly Mel was spiritual. You ask all the guys in this movie, we don't see it from everyone, a question like that. Yeah. And I, I wonder what made you decide to ask that question. Because hip-hop is, uh, for, is for all of its virtues, not typically uh, a genre that's about talking about what you like about somebody else. <laughs> yeah, well, the trick with hip-hop, like I, when I talk to Snoop, hip-hop is a sport, uh, the cl- only music that's really, really close to a sport. You know, it starts off, my DJ's better than yours, I can out-rap you, I can out-dance you, my graffiti piece is better than you. It's very competitive. But we are all fans, 
you start off a fan before you start playing basketball. Guess where you were in the bleachers watching Michael Jordan slam that ball and you wanted to do it. You start off listening to rap. So we all are fans. Who 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 defines a great MC for you? I mean, you know, to me, between Chuck D, I mean, there's great ones. Chuck D, KRS-One, Ice Cube. See, people don't understand why we call ourselves MC. And we, when I, when I finished the movie, I was like, wow, we left that out. An MC is a master of ceremonies. Uh, the DJs in the Bronx found out that they, back in the day when hip-hop was first starting, that everybody dug the breakdown of the record. Like, why the breakdown? When, the, every, when you have a record and it goes, get down, boom, the part where the rec, where the people stop singing. That's the part where everybody would try to dance the best and stuff. So the DJ said, why even play the rest of the record? Let's just play the breaks. And they were playing Steve Miller Band. They were playing Aerosmith. They were playing Billy Squire, Big Beat. They were playing all these records. I was spinning Black Sabbath, you know, dun, 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 dun. And, you know, the trick was not to let the other DJs know what beats you're playing because you couldn't go out and buy beats. You had to get them. So they would hide their records. And they, the guy that had the best beat breaks was the best DJ. Biz Markie was famous for bathing with his records to take the labels off. Exactly. So there was a secrecy about it. So now I'm the great DJ. You hand the mic over. I hand it over to you. And I say, tell everybody how great I am. You know, so that's why early rap records were all about the DJ. It was Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, Jazzy Jeff and the French Prince. The DJ provided the music. It was his sound system. You're lucky to be rapping. But what the rapper did, he would go, yeah, the DJ's great, but I'm kind of cool and I'm kind of fly. And slowly stole the show from the DJ. Like, And then another guy would get up and say, well, he was good, but I'm better. And matter of fact, I was with his sister last night. And the crowd would laugh. And that's how it would happen. But an MC not only can rap, but he can control the crowd. That's what a great MC is. So when you see kids on stage and they can rap, but then when you say tell the audience what to do, they kind of freeze up. They're not MCs yet. An MC is like a KRS-One or a Chuck D or an Ice Cube or a Melly Mel. You know, they just dominate the stage when they're on and you just are in the palm of their hand. So, you know, and like my favorite, you know, I, I guess a lot of people's favorite is Rakim. And Rakim was just so lyrically deep that it just made everybody kind of like, it wasn't just wordplay, it was like content, it was heavy, and his flow was impeccable. You you say in the movie, um, when you're talking with him, that what was so amazing to you is that when you heard Rakim, it was like being transported to a different place, which is very different than what had been going on in hip-hop to that point, which was essentially either... Um, either just talking about fun stuff, who's the best, whatever, mm-hmm. or talking about this is the reality of here. This is where I'm from. This is describing my situation. That- well, he he also had the ability to hit MCing dead on the head, like. And, and Eric B. for presidents, I came in the door, I said it before, I never let the mic magnetize me no more. That means, you know, every rapper walks into a, a show and says, I'm not rapping tonight. I'm a chill, but it's biting me, fighting me, enticing me to rhyme. I can't hold it back. I'm looking for the line, taking off my coat, clearing my throat. This rhyme will be kicking in until I hit my last note. It's like 
And then, and then, like a microphone fiend, where he says, "I was a fiend before I became a teen. I melted microphones instead of cones of ice cream. Music orientated. So when hip hop was originated, I did it like pieces of puzzles, complicated. I grabbed the mic and try to say yes, y'all. They try to take it and say that I'm too small. Cool. I don't get upset. I kick a hole in the speaker, pull the plug, then I jet. I mean, it's like crazy. It's like it's art. I could take another rapper and he could rap." 10 times as long as what I just did and never say anything as fly as that. So that's why it's like it's not really how much you say, it's what you say. What's remarkable to me about Rakim specifically is that as as eloquent and profound as his lyrics are, um, the thing, the other thing that is so transfer that makes him such a transformational figure, I think, in hip hop is the fact that he could he, you could drop all of the language mm-hmm. from Rakim's flow. You could make it and this is the thing that that makes me feel like it's it's unfair to say hip hop is poetry because it's something other than poetry mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because you could drop all of the language from uh from a Rakim verse and the sound of that voice just as an instrument on the song um is so spectacular. I mean, he took he took the cadence of hip hop from Ba 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 to this moving, flowing, shifting, changing cadence that is you know it's like a John Coltrane solo. It's incredible. The thing of it is, is like I try to explain to kids when I do lectures. I'm like, you know, let's start off with a drum beat. All right, so we have a drum beat. Boom, pop, boom, 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 pop. If you're a singer. You're like a horn, or you're like a string, or you're like a violin. So over the beat, boom, bop, boom, 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 bop. You're going da 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 da. You're like flowing over it. That's what singers do. Rappers are percussion instruments. So our job is now inside the beat to lay an additional percussion. So the beat's going boom, bop, boom, 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 bop. We go That's the flow. Now that's a trick. So we're laying a percussion inside of a percussion. I want to play a clip of uh, Nas talking about hip-hop. I think Nas has this really passionate answer to this question that, that you asked everyone. And l- l- Let's hear it. Why do you think rap isn't respected? Threatening. Mm. We're not supposed to be thinking like this. We're not supposed to be talking like this. What are we doing proud of how we talking with this broken English? How the are we making poetry out of this broken English? Why are you guys bringing street conversation to the mainstream world? Stay in your place. Stay out of there. I don't like looking at you. Mm. Fix your pants. Fix your hat. Y'all supposed to stay in the gutter. Get out of here. What are you doing invading my home? Why are my kids liking your music? What's going on? I don't like you. I don't like you. That's all they're saying. Mm-hmm. And we know it. So that's, that's why I'm, I'm proud to wear my shit and little sack. I mean, I'm a grown man now. I don't have no business wearing saggy jeans. <laughs> no business at all, you know what I'm saying? But I might let it sag a little bit, just annoy a few stiff <laughs> just because I'm, that's what got me here. Mm-hmm. And I'm always going to stay true to that. And, you know, Nas's father was a jazz musician. Well, you know, incredible. I mean, a lot of these guys got musical backgrounds. Rakim can play like every instrument. Flavor can play like every instrument. So, you know, a lot of these cats go about this as 
you know, music. You know, it's it's not just, you know, I just think, like my friend told me, you make it look easy, and the press kind of leans toward the rock and roll side of it. The rock and roll side of it is, hey, how you partying? Uh, who, who tore up the hotel? What girl you sleeping with? What kind of Ferrari did you buy? But you're forgetting that Aerosmith plays instruments. Like Keith Richards and those are really guitar players. It starts with the art. And then the the rock and roll lifestyle really is available to anybody that's got money, honestly. You know, so once you get money, if you interview 100 people with money, they'll all sound like rock stars. It's funny. <laughs> when, when Nas is, when you ask that, when you ask Nas that question, uh-huh. he doesn't even have to take a second to think about mm-hmm. it. That is so that is so close to you can feel that pain, that upset that he has right there. And he's saying, and he just opens, he basically just opens up and lets it out. And it's but this you, thing that, that has driven him it's driven all to of us. be the guy that he is. It's driven all of us. You know, it's, it's what I call powered by hate. You know, people that are successful, you always usually working upstream, you know, and, and that's what makes you excel. You know, you know, there's a there's there's if once people start liking you, then it becomes difficult, you know, because now everybody's on your side. But when there's some kind of opposition to what you're doing, that's what rock lives off of. You know, it needs somebody to say it's not I don't like it, you know, and then you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to push this down your throat. Like if if I want to stay in shape, all I got to do is go to the Internet and hear somebody say, oh, Ice-T's old. And I can go get another 20, 50 sets in the gym, you know, (laughs) use the use that negative energy to fuel you. And you'll find I used to tell parents, I said, if you really want your kids to stop listening to hip hop, act like you like it, too. You know, I say, hey, let's sit down and listen to this Ice-T album together. They'll hate it. So, you know, that's part of it. That's part of adolescence, being a little bit different. And I think that's one of the paradoxes rap is going into right now is because the parents, we are hip-hoppers. And the kids, they don't want to be on the same channel. But our generation never grew up. Hip-hop is the fountain of youth. It, you just don't grow up. If you were there, we're, we're on the same. I'm on the same. My son's 20. I'm on the same channel he's on. You know, so we wear the same clothes. We feel the same thing. And uh, it's, a, it's a weird, weird generation we're in right now. But it is. I mean, I think it is different for you and the other folks who are in this film. And, you know, uh, there are there really isn't anyone featured in this film who uh who you know emerged in the 21st century this is you know Kanye West is you know whose first record came out in like 2001 yeah you're, you're true true and so most of these folks that you're talking to are folks who have perspective on their careers who have perspective in many cases on the the rise of hip hop you know they remember as i'm sure you do before hip hop existed mm mm-hmm. mhm um, and that's a very different thing than to talk to somebody who, um, you know, if you if you went out and talked to somebody, if you went out and talked to ASAP Rocky, you know, who's just about to put out his first real record. Well, he's jumping on a boat that's already rolling. You know, he's jumping on a ship that's moving versus trying to move it from nothing. So they're coming in. At this place when, you know, radio controls rap, you know, right now you're underground. You're not going to get sell any records. You have to go pop. You have to be on the radio. It's a lot of different uh, 
dynamics with these kids today. There's thousands and thousands of rappers. When I started rapping, you could actually buy everybody's record. You had the Run DMC album. You had the EPMD. You had that Beastie Boy album. You got the Rock Kim album. You know, you, you pretty much now you got everyone who dropped. Every month it would be like four or five, but you could own every rap album. Now, come on, man, they, they're putting out like 100 mixtapes a day for free. So it's flooded right now. It's very difficult. How do you think your perspective is different now on that era of the you know birth of hip-hop um, now that it's been 25, 30 years? I didn't really know what we were creating. I didn't really know what what how big it would be. No one could foresee clothing lines and, you know, movies and television and, you know, Doritos commercials with rap, you know. But we knew it was something, and we knew every time somebody said it was a fad, we were like, it's not. So we knew it was going to be here 25 years later. But we had to fight. I mean, they used to take Luke to jail. You know, they were after me. You know, we were outlaws. I used to go to events, and they would read stuff to me, say, well, if you curse, I remember Columbus, Georgia. So if you curse, we're going to take you to jail. I must have cursed up a storm, and the cops were standing on the side of the thing, and I, my boys were running the lights. They shut the lights off in the arena, and I went into the crowd and got out, and then the cops were chasing the bus, and we got outside of the city limits. You know, it was outlaws. Like, we were just having a good time, but we're like, we're not really we're breaking your dumb law. But, you know, <laughs> kids, nobody's getting hurt. We're not hurting nobody. This is free speech. I remember, forget, I talked to Alice Cooper one time about the Bible Belt. Now it's the Dirty South. When I was doing it, it was the Bible Belt. He said, well, Ice-T, there's just some places you don't rock and roll. Because <laughs> they were definitely after him and his crazy ass. He was out there doing wild, cold Alice and stuff like that. But I'm just proud to have been a part of it, a movement that's still around today, you know, kids have transformed it in a lot of ways. And I think as being an OG or a person that had something to do with it, I just want to keep a level of difficulty in it. That's what makes it an art form. Uh, don't drop the bar so low that anybody can do it. Then it's no skill set to it. One of the reasons you call someone a star, when I look at Michael Jordan, I call him a star because he's doing something I can't do. That's what a star does. When you just make it like everybody can do it, yeah, everybody can rap. Everybody, you know, my mailman comes over. This fool sounds like DMX. He's like, hold up, son. Yo, I got, I, got, I got lyrics, son. You know, but to be that star that we all going to admire, there's got to be more to it than just a hit single. You got to give me more. Let's just, I want to believe in you, you know, and that's all I want. I just want cats to, con- to continue to keep it, keep it funky. You know, um, it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Ice T, is uh, the director and the host of a new film called Something from Nothing: The Art of Rap. What what answer to a question? Now that you you talk to literally dozens and dozens yeah. of MCs, what answer surprised you the most? Mm. I think the answer really was the origin of them. That those were always interesting. Like KRS One saying he started in a battle. I didn't know KRS One got his name. He was it doesn't say it showed in a movie, but he said he was studying Hare Krishna, and he was named after uh, Krishna. You know, 
I was like, wow, I didn't. I thought your name was Chris. He's like, no. You know, I mean, so it's lots of these origin stories or MC Light or Salt and people telling how they stood in their kitchen and rapped and Be Real saying, hey, they told me I wasn't going to be in the group. You know, you're like, Be Real, Cypress Hill? They, nah, nah, they said, you better get a better voice. So he had to come up <laughs> with that voice or he was out of the group. Just those moments when the rappers just said, man, like even Kanye saying, I lost my first battle. I was just impressed with the the humbleness of the artists and them being honest with me and telling real true heartfelt stories that I don't think anyone would have ever heard ever you know I would have heard it but I wanted I gave I'm I've I've been given a chance to let y'all see the rappers I know cuz people you know they they see Snoop but they don't know Snoop I know him so that's why sometimes when I see and I hear negative stuff about my people my boys and stuff I'm like come on man that ain't really dude you know that that's that's drama. And, like, you could sit here and have a nice interview with me. But, you know, later on tonight when we doing the after party and I go into ice tea mode, I'm going to crank up. And, I'm a, you know, I'll go into that nightmare walking psychopath talking. I'll put the lokes on and I'll bail on stage. I'll be 18 years old again. And that's, that, that's, that's performance. And I'm giving it to you and I'm there, you know. So... We are a lot. We are multidimensional. We are multi. People meet me all the time. They go, "Ice, you're a nice guy." I thought you'd be like a serial killer. I go. <laughs> I always tell them, "I go, well, you're not my enemy, are you?" <laughs> <laughs> um, so I need to. I need to ask you about this because I've read it several different places. But okay. um, I figured as long as you're sitting here Get in the my horse's studio, mouth, man, you got I, me. Yeah, exactly. So when I was a kid, I was born in 1981. Mm-hmm. So. When I was a kid, I had no greater hero than Mr. T. Okay. Mr. T was like the the hero of my life until yeah. I was old enough to know that I should probably get a real real hero who has actually done stuff. Right. No offense to Mr. T. Mr. T. Mr. T. He's got great. put on by being the best bouncer. He was in a yeah. bouncer's contest. So I want to know, I have heard from a number of sources that you actually wrote rhymes for Mr. T's weird sort of after school special video. Be somebody or be somebody's fool. It was an album by Mr. T. How did you... We actually used to have the album at my old college radio station. I've listened to it a number of times. I've, Mr. T is not a talented rapper. I, like I said, I'm still a Mr. T fan. I'm not putting the man down, but he's not good at rapping. <laughs> but what, how do you even get that job? A, is that true? And B, well, how, how do, do you, you do get... it? it? Very carefully, okay? Mr. <laughs> T is not the kind of person that's really going to take too much instruction. I mean, you ask, you ask Mr. T. You Especially ask... in 1985, no, right? Ask Mr. T, uh, what do you do on Thanksgiving? I don't eat. You know, I, cl- <laughs> I feed the hungry. I clothe the naked. You know, like, Lord have mercy. <laughs> so I was just a hot rapper in L.A. at the time. They had a project for him. They said, we want to do this um, album called Be Somebody, Be Somebody's Fool. We want him to have positive raps. Uh, Can you do this? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, it was a work for hire. It was a job. It paid a little bit of money. I'm like, you know, blah. You say, in them days, you say, hey, I'll give you 25000 I'm like, guess what? I'll write that you know what I'm saying? So I said, give me the topics. And they wrote one about mama and they wrote one about this. And right, they, they just gave me the outlines. So I wrote these rhymes. So then they made the music and I had to rap, rap it 
over the raps. Then I had to give the tracks. This is how you do it. Then you give that to him and listen to it. And he rolled with it for like a month. And his job was to learn the raps. So somewhere floating around, there's a be somebody or be somebody fool's master with me rhyming. All those damn rhymes. (laughs) Somewhere. Whoever gets their hands on that. You're in trouble, man. I don't care. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I'm on television. I'm caked out. I'm all right. I got a view of the ocean. So I'm all right. At this point, I can't say I've ever heard the album. I think I heard one or two of the songs. But hey, it's Mr. T, man. You know, Mr. T had cereal, okay? So stop playing. Mr. T was the man back in the day. Um, there's this, uh, there's this one song on the record that I, I listened oh, to no, recently. Oh, no, you're about to play it? Yeah, of course I am, yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna play it here in the studio. And this song, um... What's it called? It's called Treat Your Mother Right. Oh, Lord, I know that. Mother, I always love her. Who made the music? <laughs> treat her right, treat her right. Give me the moan and the miserable groan from the pain that you felt when I was born. Always for the oven with the burning heat. Where she stood making sure I had something to Uh-oh. eat. Yeah, I probably got guess I spelt out mother for him, you know. <laughs> my temperature when I wasn't feeling right. Anxious for the hard-earned money she spent to keep clothes on my back and try to pay the rent. It's kind of super lyrical. I kind of like it. You know what it is, man. I was young. Mr. T was the man. I was kind of like happy to be able to do it for him. But rap can do a lot of things. You know, where you can rap about yourself. You can rap commercials. You can rap a lot of different things. It's a, it's a vocal delivery. That's the one thing I try to tell people. Rap is a vocal delivery. Hip-hop is the culture. So you take a, a, like a new pop singer like Keisha and she's singing, you know, rapping, woke up the morning looking, feeling like P. Diddy. She's not hip-hop. She's just rapping. Anybody can rap. Like like, like they say, uh, Big Daddy Kane, if you, Dr. Zeus was a rapper. If you rhyme cat with hat, you're a rapper, you know? So, but being part of the culture means you, you know a little bit more about where it came from. Well, Ice, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was great to have you on the show. All right. Hey, man, it's been fun. Ice-T from 2012. Something from Nothing, The Art of Rap is available to stream and on DVD now. Check it out wherever you watch movies. Every week we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's The Outshot. There are a lot of good Bill Murray movies. There are a fair number of great Bill Murray movies. But there is only one Bill Murray movie in which he pulls a pistol on a bank security guard while dressed in full-on clown regalia. I'm robbing the bank. What the hell kind of clown are you? The crying on the inside kind, I guess. The setup's pretty straightforward. Murray, Gina Davis, and Randy Quaid pull this really clever bank heist. That's why Murray is in the clown makeup. They've got a million dollars strapped to their bodies, and they seem to be in the clear when Quaid screws everything up. And from then on, it's a classic comic thriller. The clock is ticking. That kind of music is playing, like on a 70s cop show, like... It is on. So their goal is to get to the airport. They've got a flight to the Caribbean to catch. And there are only two things in their way. One is Jason Robards, who plays the police chief. And the second... Well, the second is New York City itself. 
You realize they're probably somewhere in the third world by now. All we've got going for us is the city. Our only hope is that they're mired down in the same that you and I have to wait in every day. Why do I still want this Every supporting player, and there are some really great ones, like Tony Shalhoub and Phil Hartman, and even Bob Elliott, who plays that bank security guard we heard earlier. All these folks take a backseat here to Murray. This is Bill Murray's movie, and he is wonderful. His character's a guy who just wants to get out of town. It's never really explained why, but it's all he wants. And at every turn, he and Davis and Quaid are met by these crazy, surreal New York set pieces. It's just at the time that, like, violent taxi driver New York turned into friendly Rudolph Giuliani New York. There's one scene where a friendly tourist pulls a stick-up job on them. Two men on bicycles joust in an abandoned basketball court using mops instead of lances. A woman shaves an old man's head with a Bic razor as they sit on a city bus. And then as Murray looks down at this wrinkled, half-shaven head, he says, You're going to even that out, aren't you? There's no one better than Bill Murray at playing beaten down, world-weary, a little bit cynical, but just a little cynical. Because we always know that whatever he faces... He'll find a way to talk himself out of it. He'll somehow walk away from a mob den untouched, leave his enemies, I don't know, inspired. You hear those stories about Bill Murray showing up unannounced at house parties, smoking a J and helping to do the dishes? I don't know if they're true, but they feel true. Because it's unimaginable that Bill Murray would walk into any room anywhere and not walk out of that room with his arms around whoever was inside to begin with. That's just who Bill Murray is. He's a pal. And when you're done watching Quick Change, that's how you feel, too. Like his arms are around you, like you've just made a pal. The only problem being that your new pal's in a plane on his way to Martinique. Oh, sorry. Spoiler alert. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Our show is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. We just crossed the park. Not only did I see a turtle, but I got to have some delicious pastrami at Langer's Delicatessen. Shout out to Langer's Delicatessen. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas. Our production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Nick Liao and Khalid Malim. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Our interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music comes from the Go Team. They gave it to us, and they also got permission from their label, Memphis Industries. A thank you to both of them. And if you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And hey, while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We're sharing interviews, giving you sneak previews of upcoming Bullseye guests, even some funny, dumb stuff from the Internet. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.